May the words of my lips and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable to you, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Would you please be seated? A truism that we hear a lot is that people don't change. We are who we are, and nothing and no one can change anything about that. Maybe we say it to protect ourselves from disappointment when that that person who we think could be more than who they are seems to come up short again. Or maybe it's to explain away why we trusted that same person again who turned around and lied to us and cheated us again. Perceived change and difference in a person, it seems is a momentary lapse away from their true self. And eventually, they will regress to the norm. And I think many of us would agree that, well, as we get older, you can't teach a new dog a new dog. An old dog, new tricks. And so we just get more and more stuck in our ways, right? I wonder, though, what would Paul think of that? What would Paul have to say about the idea that who a person is never really changes? This is the man who went from being the chief persecutor of the church to the chief evangelist for Jesus Christ. And so I wonder if he would agree that people don't change. Because it kind of seems like he changed a little bit. In truth... I think he would agree that people don't change, in part. The biblical position is clear. We cannot change ourselves. But it is also clear that we need to be changed. And so living as a Christian is about the old self, the the old me being put to death so that I can live as a new creation. This is something that the the sacrament, the gift of baptism, shows us, which we have the the joy of celebrating this very day, and which Paul uses as a very powerful example in Romans 6. Now, if you've been following along in our series, you'll know that Romans 5 was all about how someone can be justified, how can they be declared righteous in the eyes of God. Well, now Paul is moving on to what we call sanctification, or how we are made holy. And we could be forgiven if we thought that being made holy is all about what we do. But Paul actually starts in a different place. What you do, Paul teaches us, comes from who you are, or who you have been made to be. To become a Christian means that you are fundamentally changed. Faithfully receiving Christ, being baptized into him, it's about moving from death to life. It means being alive in Jesus instead of dead in our trespasses and sins. We are changed. Or to use Paul's language, we are raised from death to life. And that, in turn, changes who we live for and how we live. 
That's what we're going to be looking at today. Who we are pre and post Jesus. Who it is that we live for and then how we actually live. And it's a perfect day to speak about these things. I promise, actually, when I was planning this sermon series, I had no idea we were having a baptism when we had Romans 6. It it just so happened to work out that way. This is a perfect day to speak about these things as we get to celebrate with Agatha and her family as she's baptized into the household of God. And we as a church grab hold of the promises made by our Heavenly Father to her and to all the baptized faithful. And so let's turn together to Romans chapter 6. You can find it in your bulletin and follow along there if you like. Paul begins this passage, he begins to teach us who we are by addressing a potential challenge to what he's taught thus far in the letter. Throughout the letter, Paul has made it clear that a person is justified by the grace of God alone through faith in Christ alone. It isn't about doing the right stuff or keeping the right practices. The do of Christianity comes after the who. But that raises an important question that maybe some of us have thought before. Does that mean that there's really no standard by which we live? If having peace with God isn't about what I do, then do I just get to do whatever I want? I mean, if it's all about grace, then why can't I just go ahead and sin so that it gives God even more opportunity to extend His grace to me? Right? That sounds pretty good. I win by getting to do whatever I want. God wins by giving me more grace. Everybody wins. We do love to give ourselves every opportunity we can to justify our sin, don't we? But Paul deals with this faulty thinking with a pretty startling image. He writes, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? No, Paul is saying, Christians cannot live however they please. That isn't because we need to make ourselves holy, but because our pre-Jesus self has been put to death. The image is all the more stark in verse 6 where he says, We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. The Christian reality is that sin demands a payment. Something will have to to die, either the sin that has enslaved us or our own souls. Thanks be to God, it was Jesus who was willing to die so that the sin that kills us could itself be put to death. It's what we spoke about last week, that ultimately there are two paths in life, the path of Adam, which leads to condemnation, or the path of Jesus, which leads to life. 
Coming to Jesus, being baptized into his name, into his church, means that that old self is put to death. There's no way around it. And there's no way around it because of the necessary change that the old self being put to death and the new creation being born brings about. It is the change of who we are and who we live for. In verse 4, Paul tells us, We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. So if we believe in Jesus, how we live is going to be different. That's what he's saying there. It's going to change. That's what walking in newness of life is about. That change happens because of what Paul tells us in verse 5. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We have been united to Jesus, Paul tells us. We've been united to him through his death, which puts sin to death, and have been united with him, or to him, through his resurrection, which brings life. The key word there is, of course, united. We've been united to Jesus, meaning we've been made his. To be a Christian is to belong to Jesus. To no longer live under the slavery of sin, but under the lordship of Christ. You see, that old self, that old self living, it's all about me. It's all about living for me. Whatever serves my interests and makes me happy. The new self-life that begins at our baptism is about living not for ourselves, but for Jesus. Because we have been made His. And that is a work that we need not fear. It is the gracious gift of our Lord who has set us free from sin and the power of sin forever. It could be instructive for us to consider for a moment what Paul has to say to the Galatians in chapter 2. He wrote this, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Since the old me has been put to death, the new me is raised to life by Jesus. I belong to him. You cannot be raised by Christ. You cannot be united to him and belong to anyone else or anything else. By the power of the Holy Spirit, Christ comes to dwell within us. And since he dwells within us, he leads us to what is good and true and beautiful. The Spirit of God himself convicts us of the sin that we commit so that we might repent and receive that grace anew. He makes us holy. That is the new life of the Christian, but it is only found in receiving the grace which Jesus extends and then living under his authority. Now, if that's the case, if if we could agree on that just for a moment, even if you don't, just pretend you do for one moment with me, we could begin to wonder where this question began in the first place. 
If Christians know that we must live under the grace and power of Jesus and we belong to him, why would a Christian ever ask if they can do whatever they want? If they can sin so that grace might abound? It's because the old life doesn't just give up on us, does it? Sin is a bit like that supernatural villain in in the horror movie, right? That you knock him down and you think you kill him and then you're running away and you think you're free. Then all of a sudden you turn the corner, there he is again, just waiting for you. That's what sin is like in our life. It is so often that we think we are free. We're miles ahead of it, way beyond the sin that was in our past. And then all of a sudden... Just like Jason or Freddy Krueger or pick whatever monster you want to come up with, there it is, staring us in the face. And so to deal with that, and because frankly sin's really tempting, we kind of sort of try to live this half-life. We tell ourselves that grace is so fast and so wide, we can just live however we want and then get the grace and forgiveness we need from Jesus when we need it, and we're all set. In the end, all we're doing is taking Jesus and his work on our behalf for granted. It's what Dietrich Bonhoeffer called cheap grace. Bonhoeffer who was martyred for his faith under the Nazi regime, wrote this. The essence of grace, we suppose, is that the account has been paid in advance. And because it has been paid, everything can be had for nothing. Since the cost was infinite, the possibilities of using and spending it are infinite. Cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance, baptism without church discipline, Communion without confession, absolution without personal confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without Jesus Christ. That's where cheap grace leads, friends. That's where trying to have our religious cake and eat it too leads us. Never truly receiving Jesus, never truly being changed by him. And I get why we do it. I really do. I mean, all this language about the old me being put to death, it gets gets kind of scary, doesn't it? Like, what does that mean? What does it mean for my life that the old me needs to be put to death? There's a faith-based component there that makes us kind of uncomfortable. I mean, after all, if I'm generally happy and I'm generally a good person, why can't I just have that and have a little Jesus on the side when I need to bring him in? What's so wrong with that? And Paul's not exactly helping us here, is he? He keeps using the language of crucifixion, that we've been crucified with Jesus. Now, I don't know about you, But when I'm trying to turn down the scariness level on things, I don't compare them to a brutal, torturous death. And yet, 
even though it was brutal. I would hope that at least the Christians can agree that from that brutal sacrifice, Christ gave the greatest possible good that could ever be given. Because it's as awful as the crucifixion was, by his death and his resurrection, our sin has been atoned for. All that old me sin can now be forgiven because of what Jesus has done. And so coming to Jesus is like a mini experience of this. It can be scary at times. It can even be painful at times as, as friends or family. They don't really get what's going on in our lives. And we might feel isolated from them. Or we might have to walk away from things that, that we thought we really liked or we actually did really, really like. But it turns out they're not good for us at all. It can be a bit nerve-wracking because we get stuck on the crucifixion piece and forget all about the resurrection piece. But with Jesus, crucifixion always leads to resurrection. And so as we begin to experience the grace and power of Christ in our lives, we begin to see how necessary and how good it is to live that old me, leave that old me behind. And over time, we're able to look back and see that, though, yeah, it was kind of scary, it's been really good. And there is nothing that anyone could offer us that would make us go back. I can assure you, friends, there is nothing in this world that would make me want to go back to who I was before I knew Jesus. None of you knew me before I knew Jesus, but I knew me all right. And I got to tell you, I like this me a whole lot better than that one. I can say with complete assurance, there's nothing that would make me want to go back because I knew who I was. And I know who I am. I know what he's made me. Because he changed me. It's not about me. I'm not standing and saying, hey, look at me. Look at how great I am. No, it's about Jesus. It's what he has done in me. Without him, I'd still be the old me. He has been the one who has put that sin to death in me so that I might have life in him, so that I might be his. And so I can tell you from my own experience that what seems daunting at first is actually joyful. That since I've come to faith, yeah, I still have bad days. I still get more angry than I should. I, I still mourn at sad things. In fact, I would say I probably mourn more at sad things. But now I mourn as one with hope rather than without it. I can tell you that since I've known Jesus, my heart is way softer for people than it used to be. The poor, the needy, even you regular folks. I even get a little teary at some commercials sometimes. It's true. Just because I don't want everybody hugging me all the time doesn't mean I don't get a little teary sometimes. I can tell you that I don't look at my job title or my bank account for my security anymore. I belong to Jesus. What does all that matter? What could this world possibly do to me? I belong to Jesus. I have a peace, a hope, and an assurance that I never had before. I can tell you that I'm different. And I bet if you walked around and asked other Christians in this room, you'd hear the same thing. 
Yeah, I've had to give up on some stuff, but it turns out I've traded all that in for something far, far better. Living under the authority of Jesus, it's not this call to some sad sack, joyless life. It's a call to leave behind all that was killing your soul so that you might have life in him, that you might be changed, you might be made his forever. And because that is who you are now, you are one in Christ, you belong to him, how you live changes. We get to live now what we call a a sanctified life, or maybe better said, a life that is always in process of being sanctified. In our passage this morning, for all the talk that Paul had about who Christ has made us to be and how he's put us to death and raised us up, there's only one command that he gives. Sorry, the first command that he gives. It doesn't come until verse 11. He says there, so you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Paul's command here is for us who believe in Jesus to consider ourselves dead to sin. In other words, realize who you are. Realize what Christ has made you to be. Grab hold of the truth that sin no longer has a hold on you so that you might walk in the newness of life that he wants for you. In other words, don't look back on those old ways. By faith, grab hold of the truth that you have been set free from sin. By his grace and power, he can lead you in leading a holy life. Verse 13, do not present your members to sin as instruments of unrighteousness. You're dead to sin, he's saying. Leave it behind you. But present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. You're a new creation. Live for him. And your members to God as instruments of righteousness. Let him lead you. Let him show you how to live a holy blessed life. Live the righteous life that he desires for you. Not so that we can think we're better than people. Quite the opposite in fact, because if we really know what Christ has done in us, we know that we never would have been any different without him. And so we live to please him. We do that by serving those around us, serving those in need, by blessing and forgiving even those who curse or would work against us, by seeking the betterment of our city and our society even when the world thinks we're kind of backwards or a little weird. Why would we do that? Because we live for Jesus. And so all that matters in the end is his grace, his love, his approval for us. To be sure, we will sin again. We will not live perfectly. I don't think that Pastor Josiah and Alicia need me to tell them that yes, Agatha will sin even after she's baptized. I think they've got that one locked in. We will sin again, but our sin does not negate the promise of God. The promise of God is true. 
Sin is put to death. It is not your master. And so, yes, it is possible to live differently. You're a different person. If you have faith in Christ and have been baptized into him, you have been changed and are on the path of life. But yeah, it's a path. And paths have bumps. Sometimes we make a wrong turn and we have to go back. And So while we await the return of Christ, when he will put away sin for all time, we have words like those of verse 14 for us to cling to as hope and joy. Where Paul tells us, for sin will no longer have dominion over you, since you are no longer under law, but under grace. You are no longer under the power of sin. You live under the power and joy of grace. Your master is no longer sin. Your master is Jesus. And so whatever that sin is that keeps popping up like that monster from the horror movie, it's something that you can give to him over and over and over again because in his grace... He is a Lord who has freed you from its power and will remove sin from your life as many times as he needs to. Do not be discouraged, friends. And do not take him for granted. Only consider yourself a new creation, a holy person made new by Jesus to be united to him and belong to him forever. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.